1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. So I want to take a few weeks to talk about marriage, all right? And I promise you, as I am talking about marriage over the next couple of weeks, I am not talking about you, all right? I am not talking about you. You're going to feel like I'm talking about you, and here's why. Because marriage is under such severe attack everywhere. I cannot tell y'all how many marriage counseling sessions me and my wife enter in, not just in the life of this church, but for folk outside of this church. So we are, we are in some ways part-time church planners, part-time marriage counselors. That's how much marriage counseling we are doing in this particular season of our lives. Marriage is under severe and significant attack. All right. And so we have dedicated in many ways, me and my wife have this uh, have this ambition. We want to dedicate our lives, not just to planting a healthy church um, with our with our years that God has given us. But we want to dedicate our lives to seeing healthy marriages and marriages that thrive. And so with that being said, we're going to you know, now that we're kind of moving in a post COVID season and vaccinations are kind of Uh, flourishing and all around us, we're going to probably early next year be moving towards a marriage um, a marriage retreat. Um, we normally do that every year, but, but obviously the last couple of years have been a little shaky. We're going to be moving towards that um, here in the coming, uh, in the coming year um, because we believe in healthy marriages, all right? We, ex- we really and truly believe in healthy marriages, and we want to see healthy marriages. And so as I am working through this text for the next couple of weeks, I promise you I am not talking about you. I promise you I am talking about married couples and wanting to see healthiness throughout all married couples that we find ourselves challenged, uh, challenged with counseling and dealing with counseling routinely, all right? Now, before I get into this, I just want to say that Paul waits seven chapters before he gets to this. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote in verse 1. So there's been seven chapters that Paul has been writing and dealing with other things before he actually gets to the matters in which they wrote him about, which we don't have the letter that they wrote to him. We just have his response to that letter. And this is Paul's response, or at least the beginning of his response in chapter 7. Now, this particular statement is an introduction, um, but we've had seven chapters. So why does Paul wait seven chapters before he addresses their issue? And I think the answer is pretty simple. It's because Paul believes that the issues that they have aren't the most important issues to address. Here's my observation. Paul decided to address their questions later because for Paul, there were bigger issues going on in the Corinthian church that needed to be addressed. And those bigger issues, Paul, Paul in, in many ways, those bigger issues are kind of like, you know, us picking apart the, the, the paint on the walls of a building when the foundation's cracking, right? You know, we can talk about 
a, a bad paint job, but if the foundation is not secure, it's really no use in talking about the paint job or the, or the siding or, or the kitchen appliances. There's other things that we need to address before we address those trouble issues, and that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He spends six chapters talking about a number of other things, but at the heart of those six chapters, I believe chapter 2 verses 1, one uh, through 5 kind of address why Paul takes so long to get to chapter 7, and he says this in chapter 2, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech of wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we'll stop there. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was ultimately what Paul was concentrating on, at least in the mo for the most part in the first six chapters. He was dealing with other things, but he was dealing with them as they connected back to Jesus Christ and him crucified. We can't talk about marriage until we talk about Jesus Christ and him crucified and solidify that in our bones. You see, if we have a bad gospel, then we have the foundation for a bad marriage. You understand that? If we have bad gospel, then we have a, a foundation for bad sexual ethics. If we have bad gospel, then we have bad foundation for relational ethics and how we relate back to one another. And so Paul wanted to make sure that he preached the gospel, got the gospel right, because if we can get the gospel right, then we have the foundation that we can build on and address the other issues. And you'll see why I say that in just a second. So Paul works on the gospel. In chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now last Sunday, we explained that the historical Christian description of sexual immorality is any sexual activity outside of the covenant boundaries of one husband and one wife. That's how we described it last week. Much of the early chapters of this letter uncover many of the sexual temptations that the Corinthians were struggling with. In chapter 6 last week, we read about the Corinthians struggling with uh, um, a prostitution, fornication. Chapter 5, we discussed that they were struggling with, or at least one was struggling with, a shameless type of adultery with his own father's wife. We talked about how sex was apparently seen by some in Corinth as a bodily act that was, for the most part, disconnected from the spirit of a person. It was seen more as just humans giving into their natural, uncontrolled cravings. And it was said that just like we have to eat, we have to have sex. That's kind of how they described it. Like food is for the stomach, so to speak. So is sex for the body. So we have to have sex. We can't help ourselves. We have to have sex with whomever and whenever and wherever and, and, and however. And to deny those cravings was to oppress and suppress one's ability to live a free and satisfying life. That's what we talked about last week. And we discussed how that same kind of cultural um, vibe is alive and well in our culture and in our age. And, 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 and that kind of model, that unspoken model that runs through our age, which, which is if it feels good, then it is good. We talked about that not being true, but a lie from the enemy. However, as we move from chapter 6 to chapter 7, we notice a significant swing of opinion. On one side, you have this unrestrained sexual immorality, this unhinged sexual immorality. If it feels good, then it is good that, that we just described. But on the other side, you have chapter 7. 
It appears that some in the church saw the damage that such freedom could, could, could have on the soul of man. They saw the kind of damage that such freedom could have on, on relationships. So they, in turn, have adopted a complete and total opposite position, as Paul describes in verse 1. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, it's in quotation marks. That is not Paul making a statement of truth. That is Paul saying, now concerning those matters that you wrote. First matter I want to deal with is what you guys are saying about sex. That is, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So sexuality had become so tainted in the minds of these Corinthians that they appear to have adopted a position of complete abstinence even within their marriages. On one hand, you have a group of members saying, touch anybody and touch everybody, <laughs> right? And then on the other hand, you got a group of members that are saying, touch nobody, including your spouse. This church is full of all kinds of action, right? And as a result, it appears that two things were taking place. Number one, celibacy was becoming the preferred life of some members, even if they were married. But also, people were divorcing and separating from their spouses because of their understanding of marriage and their understanding of sex. And you see, sex and marriage and relationships have become so tarnished by, by what they saw that they thought it was irreconcilable, irredeemable to a life seeking to please God. In chapter 7, Paul addresses both of these issues, but we're going to fix our attention on the first one this morning. The goodness of marriage and sex and in marriage and the dangers of celibacy in marriage and outside and sexual, sexual immorality outside of marriage. Now, due to the complete desecration, so to speak, of the purpose of sex within, within the culture, the Corinthians, the, 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 the Christians in, in Corinth were really struggling in understanding what to do with sex. However, God uses the institution of God-glorifying, Christ-centered, self-sacrificing marriage to restore sex to its original holy and good intent and to remake it into something enjoyable but selfless and beautiful. Now, I want to define what I just said. Before we go any further, I said that God is using God-glorifying, Christ-centered, self-sacrificing marriage. And I'm being very careful and intentional in my use of the phrase because all of that matters. God-glorifying. That is to say that marriage and sex done within the confines of biblical commandment and biblical principle and biblical wisdom. For example, marriage and sex between one husband and one wife. Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 7 this, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So for the Christian to be God glorifying would be to obey and follow this command. And if we try to step outside of these confines but, uh, because we've listened to the voice of the culture and of the devil then uh, and, and, and we listen Listen to the fact that they've told us that, no, nah, that's not going to satisfy you. You need to pursue other avenues in order to be satisfied. Then we're moving outside of the bounds of honoring Christ 
within our marriage. Our marriage must be God-glorifying in order for God to use that marriage. But not only God-glorifying, I said Christ-centered, meaning that it is living out marriage and sexual relationships with an understanding of how the gospel is actually intended to be reflected in it. You see, Christ-centered marriage and intimacy is living out marriage and intimacy with the understanding that it is ultimately a tool by which Christ is using to shape us into his image and into his likeness. For example, he is humbling us in marriage, shaping us into his image and his likeness by humbling us. He, in intimacy, he's teaching us to submit our will to one another, to live not simply for my own delight, my own passion, my own pleasure, but for the delight and the passion and the pleasure of another. In marriage and intimacy, he's training us to love each other unconditionally through hardship and through difficulty and through trials and through storms. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Notice, Paul here puts the wife's attention not on the husband, but he puts the wife's attention on Christ as the motivation for living selflessly, for following her husband's leadership. But Christ-centered doesn't stop just with the wife. Chapter 5 of Ephesians, verses 25 through 26, we hear this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Paul puts the husband's attention not on the wife. Paul puts the husband's attention on Christ as the deepest motivation for his continually serving his wife by laying down his life for her. You see, Christ-centered marriage is to hold a default position of looking, listen to me, looking past your spouse for your deepest motivation to serve your spouse. Looking past your spouse for your deepest motivation to love your spouse. Looking past your spouse for your deepest motivation to submit to your spouse or to humble yourself in front, uh, before your spouse or to lay down your life for your spouse. Looking past, that must be, that is the default posture of Christian marriage. That the deepest motivation is found not by looking at your spouse, but looking past your spouse to Jesus. You see, most of our default positions if we're honest, is looking at our spouses first for our deepest motivation to love and to serve and to submit and to humble ourselves and to lay our lives down for the other. And candidly speaking, none of our spouses are that hot. And it's okay to say amen, talking about you too. And when we look at our spouse, we're like, I mean, come on, man, Lee. I mean, lay down my life for this? <laughs> you sure about that, Jesus? Love unconditionally for... <laughs> you see her, right? You've seen him, right? You've seen him in action. I'm not talking about when they're in public. I'm talking about you've seen him here. 
You want me to lay my life down for that? You want me to serve that? Not him or her, right? It's like a new species. It's not the default position for most of us, and because it's not the default position to look past our spouse, but to rather look at our spouse, what happens? It impacts our our ability to serve. It impacts our ability to love. It impacts our ability to, to, to be humbled. It impacts our ability to lay our lives down. And guess what? If I'm doing if I'm doing that and I'm not loving unconditionally, then guess what my spouse is doing? If their default position is to look at me and then I fall short to show love, what happens? They say, well, man, come on now. You can't ask me to love somebody that's acting like this. You can't ask me to serve somebody that's acting like this. And what happens? Tennis, back and forth, back and forth. The momentum continues to grow stronger and stronger, and we one-up each other because neither one of us is looking past the other to see Jesus for our motivation. Now, hear my words. I said we have to look past our spouses to our Christ for our deepest motivation, deepest motivation. That does not mean that our spouses carry no responsibility to motivate us towards love and sacrifice and humility with their own love and their own sacrifice and their own humility. We owe it to one another to create a motivation to love. But what I'm saying is, is that it cannot be the primary motivation to love. It can be a motivation, and it needs to be a good motivation, but it cannot be the ultimate or the deepest motivation. The Christian marriage draws its first strength not from the conduct of the spouse, but from the faithfulness of Jesus. That's what it means to be Christ-centered. God-glorifying, I said. Christ-centered, I said. And then self-sacrificing, I said. That is simply embracing the idea in us deeply, in our hearts deeply, that marriage and sex is an expression of love, meaning that it is primarily an expression of giving ourselves over to the other versus taking from the other. In other words, marriage is first and foremost about your spouse, not about you. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, that the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This verse signifies a giving over of ourselves to the other. Now, be very careful before you turn this over on his head. This is a mutual giving over, mutual sacrifice. Both parties working together towards an end of living sacrificially and intimately for the other. What happens in a lot of marriages is that there is one person that is giving themselves over to the other. And there is the other person who's not making any attempt to give themselves over to the other. And that's the foundation of abuse. Whether it be verbal, spiritual, emotional, physical, That's the foundation for abuse. We have to be committed to giving ourselves over to one another. 
The marriage relationship is intended to be the closest human relationship in all of creation behind only our relationship with Jesus Christ. As we've seen in Ephesians chapter 5, he compares the marriage relationship to Christ. No other one-on-one relationship except our relationship with Christ is described in the terms that marriage is described. This is flesh of my flesh, Adam says, bone of my bone, he says, two becoming one. Terms are reserved for marriage and marriage alone. You see, in some unique way, those who are married not only belong to Christ, but they belong to one another. And Paul will say as much later on in this chapter. Well, he's already said it. We just read it, actually. You see, this extends to all facets of married life, not just sex. Marriage and marital intimacy is not primarily about you. Me and my wife, we have a couple of different paradoxes that we share with couples routinely when we talk to them, right? Two assumptions, three paradoxes. Three of those, uh, two of the, uh, the three paradoxes are boundless freedom. That you find freedom in marriage when you are committed to staying connected. People try to run, people try to constantly bombard you with this, with this taunt that, oh man, you're just, you know, you're just locked down and all this. Most of your freedom comes in recognizing that, yeah, I am bound. I'm bound. We are one. We're one flesh. Momentary permanence, temporary permanence is the idea that, hey, we're, we're, we're here. We're not going anywhere. But we're only here as long as the Lord allows. The Lord can call us home at any time. So we need to live with that temporary understanding in mind that we can be here today and gone tomorrow. So we need to love like we could be gone tomorrow. Knowing that we're not going anywhere unless God takes us, but God will one day take us. So let's love deeply. But the other paradox that we tell people that they should embrace is the paradox of selfless freedom or selfless happiness, rather, you find happiness when both of you guys are living for the other, giving yourself away for the other. When you have two people in a marriage that are giving themselves away for the sake of the other, happiness is boundless. It's the fuel that has carried us for 18 years. Marriage and marital intimacy is not primarily about you. Now, herein lies what I believe to be the main reason why we can't see sexual intimacy in the light that God has created it to be viewed in. Because we can't, we can't see sex properly because the selfish motivations behind our desires in sex. You see, at its root in so much of, of, the, of the talk of sex in this day, at its root is this self-serving and self-gratifying nature and attitude. It's not done in to, to, to please our spouse. It's not done in gratitude for God giving us this spouse to enjoy our lives with, but rather it is done for me and only me. In an article entitled, Three Ways Sex in Your Marriage Can Be Sinful, one pastor highlights three ways in which this kind of selfishness plays itself out. He said that, it can, that, that sex in marriage can be sinful when we withhold sex to punish our spouse. More on that later. But he also said that sex can be sinful in our marriage when we selfishly demand sex from our spouse. He said that Jesus' love for his bride was utterly selfless in that he came and that he gave himself up for her. 
This call to love unselfishly extends to our self-sexual relationship within marriage. Selfish sex within marriage can be just as sinful as sex outside of marriage, since it is a way of laying our spouse down for us instead of laying ourselves down for our spouse, end quote. Another way that we can operate with selfishness in our marriage is that we can use sex to shame our spouse. He, and he writes in, in, in that, under that topic, because sex is such an intimate part of the marital bond, it's extremely sensitive. And when we're frustrated about our sex lives, we can say hurtful things to our spouse related to this area of our marriage. This can further damage intimacy and create a rift between couples. At that point, the sex is not about your spouse, it's about you. And when the sex becomes about you and only about you, it becomes sinful, saints. Selfish sex is sinful sex. Our primary aim in marriage and in intimacy should always be the giving of ourselves away. It is first about your spouse, not about you. So to say God-glorifying, Christ-centered, self-sacrificing is to say I give myself completely to God for my body is not my own. And since he has, since he has given me to my spouse in a union in which he has fashioned and created, I give myself away to them as well. That's what we mean when we say God-glorifying, Christ-centered, self-sacrificing marriage. Now, quickly, let's unpack a few things that's said in these verses, a couple of things, just real quickly. God uses that kind of marriage to reconcile sex back to its place. In verse 2, we see this. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each each woman her own husband. It appears that some of the Corinthians were abstaining from sex because they, because they were seeking somehow to be more spiritual. But what Paul is arguing for here is that for many of us, God will actually use the marriage and use the intimacy and sex within the marriage to maintain our purity and to deepen our spirituality. Did you hear that? Just making sure. Paul is inviting those in the church whose understanding of sex has been completely twisted to begin to rethink it. For Paul, a single man who embraces singleness and celibacy, he, I mean, I'm sorry, he is a single man who is embracing singleness and celibacy, and yet for him, sex is not something for married couples to be reluctant about. It's actually something to be enjoyed within the parameters that God has provided for them, for their own good. Now, the should have in verse 2 is not written as a command for everyone to take up a spouse. Paul says as much in verse 6. However, for Paul, ongoing relational and sexual desire is a clear justification for marriage. Marriage is not a place where we should usually be overcome with relational, um, where we where we should be overcome with sexual and relational desire that leads to sin. Marriage is a place 
where our relational and sexual desire has the opportunity to be fulfilled in a deep, in a meaningful way that frees us to live holy lives and frees us to live pure lives before God. I mentioned an article a moment ago, three ways in which marriage can be, sex in your marriage can be sinful. And I told you that we would come back to the first reason the author said that sex in marriage can be sinful. When he said we can withhold sex to punish our spouse. This is what Paul says in verses 3 through 5. The husband should give it to his wife his, her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul says part of the purpose of our union is to grow in holiness together by helping each other not give into the temptation of sexual desire. The first half of verse 4 was not a very revolutionary statement in Paul's day. When he said wives are to give themselves over to their husbands, for they do not belong to themselves but to their husbands. You see, in ancient Rome, the wife did not have authority over her own body. For all practical purposes, she was subject to the desires and whims of her own husband. And the husband, the husband, however, was never subject to the desires and whims of his own wife. He wasn't really subject to his wife in any way. He, she, was, she was there ultimately for him, but he could look elsewhere to have his desires met if he wanted to. And that's what makes the second half of verse 4 so revolutionary. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That's where the distinction comes in ancient Christianity. See, in Christianity, marriage and intimacy are matters of mutual submission. Not moving on the whims and demands of the other alone, but moving selflessly together towards one another. In Christianity, marriage and intimacy is living with a sensitivity not just to your needs, but to your spouse's needs. It is a, it is a desire to live for the good of one another. In marriage or in Christianity, marriage and intimacy is, of course, expressing your needs to your spouse. But our primary sensitivity should be towards the needs of our spouse because we belong to them and they to us. Yes, feel free. Express your needs. You should express your needs. Not just, not just intimate and sexual, but all your needs. But it can't be about all your needs. Your default position, again, must be towards your spouse, even as you express Paul says, don't deprive one another. Deprive one another of what? Deprive one another of intimacy. Deprive one another of the joys of unbridled intimacy. Deprive one another of the joys of guiltless intimacy, God-glorifying, Christ-centered, self-sacrificing, and self-satisfying intimacy. I'll, say, I'll give you a reason why I said that in just a moment. But Paul is deviating from the cultural norms in some ways 
with his view of marriage. You see, marriage in antiquity was often seen as a means to continue the family legacy. It was seen as a tool for, for family and social stability. It was seen as a tool for economic security, but it was not a primary tool for sexual and relational intimacy. And that's why sexual immorality was so rampant, because you can find sexual fulfillment anywhere. It's not why you got married for these folks. You could do that anywhere. You didn't, you didn't need marriage for that. And it appears that they had so much sexual promiscuity that the folks in the church started seeing it only in the negative light even to the point of seeing marriage itself as a possible stumbling block. However, for Paul, marriage was all of those other things, security, an ability to procreate and extend a family lineage, but it was also very high on the list for Paul was the fulfillment of sexual desire and intimacy. You didn't go outside of the marriage for that. You went into marriage for that. You went into covenant for that. Why? Because the deepest intimacy deserves the deepest commitments. You see that? You're giving of your very self, you're giving your very self away. And in the giving of yourself away, that deserves the commitment of oneself to you. And so the deepest intimacy is reserved for the deepest covenant of marriage. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15, it says, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Paul is saying, and Scripture is affirming him in what he's saying, that God gave you one another and bonded you at the deepest level of commitment and sacrifice in order that you might enjoy one another at the deepest level of intimacy. Here's where we run into a very interesting paradox, right? We give ourselves over to one another, living for the sake of one another, for the joy of one another, for the happiness of one another. And God has a way of producing happiness and satisfaction in us. You see, when self-sacrifice is pursued by both spouses, self-satisfaction is what they get in return. You see that? See, some people pursue satisfaction first, and because they pursue satisfaction first, they don't sacrifice, and so they ultimately get neither. But here God is saying, no, sacrifice. Give yourself over to one another. He belongs to you. You belong to him. And in return, guess what happens? Proverbs 5, 15, both of you are satisfied to the end of your days. Because you're giving yourselves over in the way that God has ordained and instructed, leading to the happiness, leading to the fulfillment that you so desperately want. 
This is the gift of mutual submission. By the way, let me say this, as I think this is, it's very important. Mutual submission is not just an appeal to not withhold from our spouse, but it is an appeal that our spouse should not force anything on, upon us either because they belong to us as much as we belong to them. You see, mutual submission is about taking a constant posture where we ask, what does my spouse need? Paul even gives us a situation in, in verse, uh, verse 5 of chapter 7. He says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. There are times that Paul says are important enough to be deprived. Prayer being one of those times, but it is not Paul's mission to make an exhaustive list, but rather to make a point that it is not all demands all the time. You see, if my spouse, for example, has, a, has faced a history of abuse and trauma, or if my spouse has faced or is facing a significant health issue that makes intimacy difficult or painful, or as Paul mentioned, my spouse is in a season that they want to dedicate a period of, uh, of time to deepen their spiritual devotion and formation with God. Then me living for them and me giving myself over to them and me living mutually submissive to them may mean operating with greater patience to them and with them and greater gentleness to them and with them and greater care to them and for them as it relates to intimacy. Saints of God, this is what God desires to do in marriage and in intimacy in marriage. He desires to make it a place where we are sanctified in a way in which we live more selflessly and more committed to his glory rather than our own and in a way that we are more committed to make Christ the center of our life and not ourselves. And when this happens, marriage becomes something glorious. And when it happens, so does sexual intimacy. It becomes something glorious and good. Lastly, let me say a word about singleness and marriage and this kind of competition that sometimes people make of it. Verse 6 of chapter 7, he says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, this is a very important text to consider for those of us who are single as well. Singleness is good. It's good. It's good. But don't say, well, singleness is my thing, if you are, like, actively looking for a mate. Right? Apparently it's not. And that's okay. I mean, you, do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, don't say I need to be single while constantly yearning for companionship and yearning. Not talking about just having the occasional struggle, but, but yearning for companionship and yearning for relational intimacy. See, even if you're not married, it's okay to desire it. It's okay to be content in singleness while not hiding your desire for marriage. Paul says very clearly in verse 7, each has his own gift from God. 
one of one kind and one of another, meaning that some folks are gifted in such a way where singleness with community is a gift. Relational intimacy is more than sexual intercourse. I will say that, and, and my wife will say that, and we'll say that to the cows come home. It is more than sexual intercourse. It is friendship. It is brotherhood. It is sisterhood. And some people are gifted to enjoy that intimacy that comes from community while living a more dedicated life on mission with God. That's what it means to be single and uh, gifted to be single. But singleness with contentment is not an excuse for singleness with dishonesty. Does that make sense? Somebody asks you, oh, man, you know, so you just want to be single forever? It's like, no, it's not my gift. (laughs) Not my gift. Right? God didn't give me that one. And it's okay. But... With that said, honest singleness is not desperate singleness either. You see, Paul says in verse 7, in verse 8, that singleness is a preferred, is his preferred good. Paul says that it is his preferred good. In other words, it's a good thing and it's a righteous thing. And even if it's not your preferred good, God can still use it in this moment for his glory and for your eternal good. So for a man like Paul, the single life, He committed to it. Celibacy was a worthy good for him. However, it was not an ultimate good for him. Because, see, while Paul sees singleness as a worthy good, he is not trying to dismiss marriage. In fact, the Bible speaks clearly, as we've read, to the goodness of Christ-centered, God-glorifying, self-sacrificing marriage. Chapter 2, 18, uh, chapter 2, verse 18 of Genesis says, It is good that man should, uh, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Marriage. Even after the fall, we see that marriage was sustained as a good thing. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22 He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So marriage is a good thing. Singleness is a good thing. Neither are ultimate things. Are you tracking with that? So life is, you know, you don't have to thumb your nose up in disgust if you're, you know, if you're, if you're, if, if you're married at the singles. And you don't have to thumb your nose up in disgust if you're single, looking at the married folk. Does that make sense? Neither one of them are ultimate things. Christ is. What has Christ called us to do? Whether we eat or whether we drink, whether we're married or whether we're single, whether we are living our entire life dedicated to celibacy or whether we ain't got that gift, Do it all to the glory of God. Because in my singleness, Christ can be exalted and magnified and reflected. And in our marriage, Christ can be glorified and magnified and reflected. And neither one of us should be looking at the other with animosity, with spite, but rather we should be looking up and saying, Lord, help me live the life you have called me to live in this season in such a way where I bring you glory in it. That is the desire for all of us, no matter what marital state we may find ourselves in. Amen.
Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we love you and we thank you and we give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor.